When uh, Laura and I first moved down to Florida, didn't pass this off by you, I uh, apologize, I just realized that as I looked down and she's giving me a look like, well, this is the first, so nothing bad. Uh, <clears throat> when we first moved down to Florida, uh, the youth pastor, we were a part of the youth ministry and the youth pastor there gave us the opportunity to scout out a trip to Haiti. Uh, that we would take the kids to, the, the youth group, so we could get a better idea of what was down there, what was going on. And so we flew from Tampa to Port-au-Prince, and then we traveled all those different routes that we were going to take with the students when we went down there. So we took a, little, a short little flight over the hills to Jacmel, and then we took a top-top ride to Kai Jacmel. And a top top, you've got to understand what a top top is. Maybe you've heard of this before. It's, it's basically just a, a, a small pickup truck. And what somebody has done is they've attached wooden benches to the bed, and then they put poles uh, along the top so you can hang on. So what you need to, you need to imagine, really, a, a subway, a crowded subway, you know, where people are hanging on to things wherever they can. They're standing over. People are sitting down wherever they can sit, you know, only... It's, it's not this steel enclosure on a, on a track. You're, you're on the back of a very small pickup truck doing that. So it was nuts. And then we, we got to, to Kai Mel and uh, we got to basically look through and, and see everything, meet the different people. And I also just imagining what it would have been like to take that top top over the mountain. I think we might have gotten a van at least, but those roads that we were on, I mean, they were pretty scary. So I was very happy that we had that, that air flight, that flight from Port-au-Prince to Jacmel. But it might have been safer to take the van. We found out later because shortly after we took the students, they shut that, that airport down in Jacmel, something about a crash over in the hills. So it might have been better to take the top top. But we... we we got our first experience of, of the non-air-conditioned heat of Haitian nights. We got to take the first watchful trips out to the outhouses at night where we imagined the tarantulas and snakes were crawling around our feet. We, we got to take the showers that we were sworn to not let a drip of that water get in our mouth. So we got to experience all that first. Now, we did enjoy, we enjoyed meeting the missionaries, seeing what they're doing. We enjoyed meeting the Haitians there. It was, it was good, but... I mean, it was, it was very interesting for us. We, we've, we've gotten pampered a bit. So the Bible actually mentions forerunners, pioneers, mentions people that kind of blaze a trail ahead of others. Now, we don't always recognize that that's what they're doing in the Bible. In fact, they didn't recognize that that's what God was doing with them. But what you see in the Bible, what you see in Scripture are these patterns that God continues to take people through. He uses these pioneers, and he does that so that God's people will understand the path that they're on. So some people in the Bible, they're like living, breathing maps. They're, they're living pictures of God's plans that are kind of portrayed in, in flesh and blood. People like Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. So Exodus, it opens... With a new story, but at the same time, it's part of the story of Genesis. And so the first word in the book of Exodus in Hebrew is actually the word and. It's a little word. It's a very important word because it shows us that Exodus 
it's not just its own independent story. It's actually part of that began in Genesis. So it's really a new stage in the story. It's a new beginning for a new people. So our passage this morning is going to tell us about that new people, but it's going to explain, first of all, that God used a trailblazer, a pioneer, to help his people see the path that they were going to take. He used a scout, really, to live out what Israel was going to, to face. Somebody who was going to pass through the waters of judgment first. Who was going to live out in the desert, the wilderness for 40 years. Same wilderness they'd be on. Who would actually end up at the mountain of God that he was going to lead them to. So, that's obviously not a coincidence. That's the God of Providence. So what we need to do as we look at Exodus, we need to keep our eyes open because Israel actually blazed the trail for us. We, too, were slaves. We experienced an exodus. We passed through the waters of judgment at our baptism. We have a preview, really, of our story in the story of Exodus. It's not just recorded to tell us what Israel's salvation was, it actually teaches us about our salvation. So that's why it's important from the very beginning to say that this is historical. This isn't just a great story. Even though the Egyptians refused to include it in their record of history like they did with many of their defeats, this actually happened. Philip Philip Ryken, he explains why that's so important. He writes, it is a great story, One of the greatest ever written, but it is also history. Or sorry, he asked the question, but is it also history? If not, if Exodus never happened, then the book of Exodus has little or no claim on our lives today. If there was no Exodus, then there's no reason to believe in a God who has the power to save. But there was an Exodus. So we can and should believe in a God who saves in human history, in our lives. So these early chapters, what they do is they give us a pattern to pay attention to how God saves his people. So you can turn to Exodus chapter 1, and and our new year is going to begin with a new beginning, a new beginning to God's story. And there's really three parts to that in Exodus 1, starting in Exodus 1. In verses 1 through 7, you see a new people of God followed by uh, verses 8 through 22 with a new enemy of God, and then finally in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a new instrument of God. So there's a new beginning to God's people, and in that new beginning, there's a new people of God, a new enemy of God, and a new instrument of God. And again, as we look at the pattern that these people experience, it gives us a preview of what we can expect to find in our lives. So if you turn to Exodus 1, it's found on again on page 42, in the Bible, there in the pew, Exodus 1, and we're going to begin with the first seven verses, again, it's page 42, and we're going to look, first of all, at uh, those first seven verses, also peek at verse 9, and we're going to see this new people of God, and already mentioned that in Hebrew, this, this book begins with the word and. It, it means that this book, it's part of a larger work. It's called the Pentateuch. We've named it that. That word just means five books. 
These are the first five books of the Bible. So they've actually, those first five books were structured in a way that shows that they are actually one work. And yet they're also, there's these five books within them. So Exodus, it has a distinct organization, but it's also part of the story in these five books. It attaches itself to that by that word and, that translations just often don't know what to do with, so they they kind of leave it out. But it starts with and, and then it reminds us of where we are in the story. You could call verses one through six a prologue to the book. It's reminding us, it's introducing us to the story of Exodus by reminding us of where the, the first book in the series had been. So verse one actually is word for word identical with Genesis 46, eight. And really it's just a, a shortened version of the list found in, in chapter 46. And, and in Genesis 46, it lists out the 70 charter members of the nation of Israel. Here, it just lists the patriarchs. But, but then in verse, uh, the next verse, it repeats, or just maybe in that verse. Sorry, at verse 5, it, it mentions that there are 70 persons. So it doesn't list the 70, but it mentions that there were 70 persons, including Joseph, who's already there. And those 70 people were the charter members, like we saw in Genesis 46, of this people group that are going to become a nation. And what's interesting about that is that 70 perfectly matches the number of the people listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10. You know, you could say that those 70 people were the charter members of the new world after the flood. So what God's doing in in having 70 people exactly be the charter members for his people in Egypt, he's making a statement about how this is a new beginning. A new creation, as it were. It was, it's a new humanity that he's beginning. And then verse 6 points out that all these charter members died. And so what you have is the seed of this new humanity. It's in a period of gestation. You know, there's, it's not too long where this nation is going to be born. But it's not without labor pains. And that's what we read about in this passage. But their growth is also like you have with children in the womb. It is very rapid. Now, I know it does take nine months, right, for a child to form. But understand that in those nine months, you go from one cell to billions of cells in just nine months. And that's rapid growth. That's phenomenal growth. And that's the growth that you see with God's people here. And God's people are recorded or described as God's firstborn son in Exodus. So verse 7 then explains that rapid growth as the fulfillment of God's promises, his promised blessing, in fact, to them. So you remember the creation blessing found in Genesis 1, then mentioned again in Genesis 9, later repeated to the patriarchs where God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The wording here in verse 7 shows that God kept his promise. They were fruitful and multiplied and filled the land, which is the exact same word translated earth in Genesis 1, 28. So just as he blessed Noah in Genesis 9-7, he describes a, a promised blessing there that they would swarm or team. He uses the same word here. He describes Israel as swarming and teeming. Now, we use that word usually with flies or locusts, but it, it's used to express just how the people had increased greatly, and that's why the ESV interprets the word there that way. 
But then the text also says that they grew exceedingly strong. That phrasing, that matches perfectly the description that God promised that Abraham would become. He would become a nation just like this. God promised that in Genesis 18, 18. So the wording here, it matches all these promises to the patriarchs that God would cause their descendants to be this populous nation. And it shows how God kept his promise to them. He kept his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So that rapid expansion of people from 70 people to now this massive group of people, this is now a group that could be referred to as a people, not just a family. And Pharaoh is actually the first one to do that in verse 9. I know the ESV translates the word people in verse 7, but it doesn't actually occur until Pharaoh mentions it. And when Pharaoh mentions that Israel is a people now, not just a family, he compares them to his own people. Egypt is a people, Israel is a people, and the Pharaoh says that Jacob's family is now more numerous and mightier than they could handle. They were a people group now to be reckoned with. And and again, this is all by God's doing. So the story of the Bible is a story of God creating a people for himself. Begins with creation, but then God's separated from his people because of the fall. And so the rest of the Bible is really describing what God is doing to finish what he started, to complete this humanity where he will be their God and they will be his people. And so the miraculous nature of what God does here at this part of his plan with this new creation, what that does is it gives us certainty that he is going to finish what he started. Look at, look at what he did for Israel. He is going to fill this world with his people, and he will be their God. But as this, this new stage begins with this new people of God, there's opposition, as there always is with God's plan. So in this fallen world, there are forces at work that they, they want to fight against Everything's God, God's doing every step of the way. And so what you see is with this new stage in God's plan, you also see a new enemy of God. And that enemy is introduced in verse 8, which says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And I'd love to be able to tell you who this king was. But I can't. <laughs> It'd be nice if God had told us, right? If he had if he'd given us the name, recorded the name here. But you know, I think the choice... To not include his name was deliberate. What what you see in this section, there are very few names mentioned. I mean, Moses' parents aren't even mentioned later on in chapter 2. They aren't mentioned until chapter 6. There's very few names mentioned, and that seems to be very deliberate. Kind of make a statement about who you need to pay attention to. Who do you need to know in this passage? You don't need to know Pharaoh. The amount of space that Pharaoh's name would take up in your brain isn't worth the space. You need to know about the Lord God. And so Pharaoh, of course, he thought he was, he was a lead in this, in this story, but he, he's really just an extra. The main character, again, is the Lord. And in, even more central than Pharaoh is God's people. So we don't know when it took place, but at some point there was a new Pharaoh. And you have to understand the kind of the politics, the situation in Israel. There were different people groups that would control Egypt at times. Some of them were native to Egypt. Some of them were foreign. There was a group of foreigners that took over that were a Semitic group of people, and they're referred to as the Hyksos. So that may have been the group of people that were in charge when Joseph was in charge. 
But it seems that this Pharaoh, he, he's very mistrusting of foreigners at this point. And maybe even specifically Semitic foreigners like the Hebrews. So what it means when he says, when it says that this Pharaoh did not know Joseph, it means that he did not acknowledge Joseph. It wasn't that he had no knowledge of it, no memory of it, but he did not acknowledge Joseph, especially if Joseph had helped the Hyksos. So this Pharaoh had no loyalty to Joseph and, of course, then no loyalty to his family. And then starting in verse 9, this new Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So you can understand his concern. They're growing numerous. He sees them as a threat. So if enemies like the Hyksos, they returned. Well, of course, the Israelites are going to side with the enemies. I mean, they're both Semitic. So he instructed his people to deal shrewdly with them. They need to be smart about the situation. At the same time, it doesn't appear that he wants them to leave. He doesn't want them to leave the land. See, he could have just kicked them out if that was the solution, but he didn't do that. He saw a greater advantage to keeping them there. And so instead of kicking them out, just to be more safe, he chose to enslave them. I often imagine enslaving where you take somebody, bring them into your home, and force them to labor. That, that's not really the picture here. They, they, they continue to live in Goshen. They continue to raise their crops and shepherd their flocks. But now they also had more things to do. Now they had added tasks that they needed to complete. And so the Egyptians... They divided them into these labor groups. They put a taskmaster over each one. And the tasks, it says, that they, they gave was to build the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. Now, the names of those cities, just like other cities' names in the Pentateuch, they probably were updated by a later prophet. Uh, you see that in places like Genesis 14, 14. But these cities that it mentions, they were built up at various times. So, for example... Oh, Hundreds of years before, Ramses, which one of the cities was eventually named after, it, it was known as Averis or Perinefer, and it had been the Hyksos capital. But they abandoned it, and so what the pharaohs did is they built up these cities. They built up these facilities for troops, and they put magazines there with you know, armories, and, and then they built these enormous storage facilities for grain. They were doing that because these cities are located on the east. And the east is where the Semitic peoples would come from. So they're building it up to protect themselves. So when it says that they built these cities, it probably just means that they built them up. And the plan there to build up these cities, that addressed one of Pharaoh's concerns, this invasion from without. It didn't address his fear that these, these people in his own country were going to rise up and potentially be a problem for him. And verse 12 says that it became more of a problem. The more they oppressed, they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And that wording actually comes from God's promise to Jacob at Bethel in Genesis 28, 14. So this is really a nightmare for the Egyptians. You know, they would view the Israelites as though they were zombies amassing in the middle of their, their country. I mean, they're, they're just exploding like it's an infestation and they're their actions towards them fit with that attitude. They loathed them. Verses 13 to 14 emphasize this ruthless treatment. It repeats it. It doesn't, you know, it could have just said they treated them ruthlessly. 
But it just keeps repeating just how bad they were to them. It says that they, they treated them ruthlessly as slaves. They made their lives bitter with hard service, making them work in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And then verse 14 just basically repeats verse 13. Just to emphasize, they made their lives miserable. But notice it wasn't just the Pharaoh doing it. Verse 12 describes the Egyptians having this attitude toward them. Verses 13 through 14 are plural. They're all doing this. They're all treating them this way. This xenophobia. You find it, it's easy to spread. It's found here in Egypt, but it spreads really easily. It's illustrated not just in ancient times, in modern times as well. Again, Philip Riken, he points this out. He says, blaming things on ethnic minorities is always convenient because racism is part of our sinful human nature. This is what made it so easy for Hitler to promote anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. Germany, it, it is why the Afrikaners were able to use the black threat argument to such deadly advantage in South Africa. And it is why each new wave of immigrants from the Irish to the Indonesians has faced prejudice upon coming to America. And that's really shocking to me when you think about our history. Right? Nearly everyone in America is an immigrant. Right? We haven't been that that long. Whether you're of British stock or, or whatever, you haven't been that here that long. In the grand scheme of things, Europe laughs at America when we talk about our ancient history. We haven't been there that long. And yet what happens is, each wave of immigration, you have the people that have been here just a little bit longer, they, they look down on the new people. They blame them for their problems. They even treat them poorly, just actually are negative towards them. So understand that negative attitude toward somebody of a different ethnicity. That's not just a political concern about immigration, Right, Because you can, you can be concerned that people do things well, but if you look down on somebody because they don't look like you, that's a problem. That's the reaction of somebody who's doing the same thing that Pharaoh's doing and the Egyptians are doing here. It's just horrible, ugly sin. It's put on display by these Egyptians' anti-Semitism. But anytime you promote an us versus them mentality, have you ever sat and thought about when you say the word them or they? There is no them. It's just us. And anytime you promote that kind of thinking, you are siding with God's enemies. So, Look at where that thinking leads to in the end. The king of Egypt, with this xenophobia, he, he's trying to solve his, his problem as he sees it, but he tries, first of all, to do it secretly. And so he pulls aside these two Hebrew midwives, and they appear to be the only ones in Israel, and he gives them secret instructions. Now, it's, it's not clear. The Hebrew isn't clear. It doesn't actually say birth stool. That's an interpretation of a word that you could more literally translate two stones. What, what seems to be clear is that the king wants them to quickly identify the gender so that they can kill the little boys that are born. That's what he's telling them to do. So think about it. If the boys stop being born, not only does that limit the population, it also limits the number of potential fighting people in the armies 
that could have rose up against them. So he's trying to kill a number of birds with a few stones. So he, he says then, or it says in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, the, the king of Egypt could have been severely hard on them. He could have punished them severely for disobeying him. But for these two women, God was bigger than their king. His presence, God's presence was more significant than the king's presence. So they refused to obey. The text doesn't say how he found out or when he found out, but eventually he found out, he sent for them, he asked them, why did they disobey? And, and they said, well, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. When you just read that, it sounds like, a, sounds like kind of a dig on the Egyptian women. But it, it might not have been that. Uh, there's a, one professor who, who explained, uh, Douglas Stewart, he explained that that wording, it could just be a cultural difference. It could be that the Hebrew women were more involved in the birthing process. In fact, it could be that what they're basically saying is that, look, our women basically have the baby before we get there. And we can't actually do what you asked. Now, Dwayne Garrett pointed out the problem with what they said. Verse 17 plainly says that they let them live, meaning they could have killed them but they let them live. They were there. They had opportunity. Plus, the verse explains their reasoning. It was because they feared God, not because they didn't have opportunity. So understand, this is a lie that they tell, and it's a lie to save their necks. You could understand why they would do that. We'd be tempted to do the same thing. But just so as not to be confused, their lie isn't the valorous act that, that the text actually focuses on. Sometimes we make a big deal out of that. Say, look, God rewarded them for their life. That's not what the text is focusing on. We also need to keep in mind that these young women don't have a Bible. And we have no idea what ethics were taught to them. I mean, they're essentially pagans with, with one difference. They believe in God. And that belief in God, that knowledge of God, impacted their behavior. And that's what the Lord stresses here. That's what he rewards their civil disobedience based on understanding him. And notice their names are mentioned. One of the few names mentioned, Shifra and Pua. And the ESV puts it that, that, that God gave them families. Again, it's an interpretive translation. You could more woodenly translate that. And he made for them houses. That could mean more than that, that he just gave them children. He could have made their, their families more significant in Israel multi-generationally significant, which would be why he would mention their names, because people knew them. They were significant families because of those women. Then you see the result in verse 20. People multiplied and grew very strong. God's promises were kept through their courageous civil disobedience. Now, you and I, we cannot stop God's enemies. We can't. God is going to stop his enemies. But when you see people fighting against God, as seen here with the Pharaoh and the Egyptians fighting against God's promised blessing, as you see today, when people fight against God's creation blessing in abortion, when you see that, we may not be able to stop it, but you can stand up for those 
who cannot protect themselves. You should stand up for those who cannot defend themselves like these women did. It is right to stand up against God's enemies. Again, we're not going to defeat them. We're not going to be able to stop God's enemies from cropping up continually and from hating God and from fighting against him. But we can, just like these women did, we can align ourselves with God. And we can refuse to succumb to the pressures in our society. We may not have a pharaoh breathing down our neck, but we do have a pro-choice movement that attempts to say that murdering babies in the womb, it's a matter of women's health. And they try to bludgeon us into silence by saying that we're abusive to women by trying to fight for the lives of children. We should fear God rather than men and women. And when the society attempts to turn creation on its head by setting ourselves up as those who can determine gender, it is right for us to speak up for children being mutilated by an anti-creator movement. We should be courageous enough to say, no, that's not right. You should not harm children. Even if they're your children, should not take some scalpel to them. The enemies of God, they are real, but so are the instruments. And, and look at these instruments here, the people that God uses. The majority of these instruments in this text are women. And they were integral in preserving the life of one particular instrument in God's plan. And, and what we see next is the birth of that new instrument of God born there in chapter 2. Now, Pharaoh, I, I didn't mention verse 22, Pharaoh had responded, he had, his plans escalated in verse 22. No longer was he trying to be secret. At this point, he's ready to just live it all out there, you know, he just told the entire Egyptian people to murder all the Israelite newborn boys. And verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So that's the new policy in place in chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2 gives us some background information that took place actually before the edict. We know that because the married couple... They're mentioned here, but they're later identified as Amram and Jochebed. They'd already been married. They'd already had two older children, later identified as Miriam and Aaron. So this isn't saying that after the edict, then they got married and had children. That had already happened. But it does describe their marriage just the way that you would at this time. A man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And then it says that the woman conceived and bore a son. Again, a very normal way to talk about the the pregnancy and and the birth of a child but when it's mentioned in the pentateuch it's mentioned that that the reason it's mentioned is because something significant is happening it's a significant birth and so that's what you see in this chapter the significant person that's being born god is taking the next step in his plan to create a people for himself and you can see that significance even more in the wording of verse two now, the text Reads, the ESV reads, when she saw that he was a fine child. More literally, the text reads, and she saw that he was good. Now, where else do you hear someone see that something is good? I hear it, Genesis chapter 1, right? Repeatedly. 
and he saw that it was good. The wording is, is saying this is something significant. This is new creation type thing. So the next, the, the, in the context, basically saying that means that the child's viable. But it's worded that way to, to draw attention to it. So in the ancient Near East, the infant mortality rate was, was usually quite high. And, and so it seems like she has this opportunity while the child is very young, this newborn infant, this first three months, she has a chance for some privacy. She's able to kind of hide the child for a little while. But then after that time period, she's going to have to go back out into the public. And at that point, people are going to know the gender. And so it's at that point that she, she cannot follow Pharaoh's policy here. Just like the midwife, she's not going to obey him. But what it seems, and looking at this, is kind of a confusing thing that she does in many ways. It seems like what she's doing is in many ways akin to our putting a child on on the steps of an orphanage or a church. Now, it is different, but understand the worldview of, of the ancient world. They understood their, their lives as being at the mercy of the fate of the gods. And, and there were other instances of people putting a child in a basket in a river, not even in Egypt. So it seems like people were, at, at, in some way, they would have been basically leaving the child in the hands of the gods. So for this Hebrew woman, she is leaving her child in the providential hands of God. Now, What's especially interesting is the way that this is described. So stories can include certain details, but they leave a lot of details out. Because of that, you need to pay attention to what's actually in the story. And what's in this story is a wording that draws attention to another building project that already happened in Genesis. So our word ark, it's used for the ship that Noah built and then also the Ark of the Covenant. But those two words in Hebrew are different. The word that is similar to Noah's Ark is the word here translated basket. It's the only other place it's used in the Hebrew Bible. So, and even her use of bitumen and pitch, the way it's worded, sounds very much like what Noah did with his Ark. So what this woman is doing, this is meant to allude to the Ark. She is placing her Ark in this river. And remember, that river is, it's, it's the designated judgment on Israel's people. Now later on, God is going to take the same thing. He's going to take water and he's going to judge Pharaoh's people. Pharaoh is trying to judge God's people with this water. He's going to judge them with water, just like the flood. But for now, Moses is the one who passes through these these waters safely, proleptically. He's, He's anticipating what Israel's going to go through. He's their forerunner. He's blazing the trail ahead of them. So while this little ark is placed in these floodwaters, his little, this baby's spunky older sister, she decides that she's going to try to get a glimpse of God's providential hand. Now she's probably somewhere between 6 and 12 years old, and she's doing a stakeout on this little basket. And who comes up to the basket but Pharaoh's own daughter, I imagine her heart sunk when she saw that. Because, I mean, think about it. What can you expect from the daughter of, of the despicable man who just legislated genocide? I mean, of course she's going to find the baby and then just toss her baby brother into the water. Daughter of Pharaoh, she comes and, and 
she may not have actually gotten in the Nile. The text actually says that she came to bathe at the Nile, at the river. I mean, there were, after all, crocodiles. So uh, her attendants, they're walking along the river, and, and they're probably guarding her, her privacy, but they may be watching out for some other critters. I mean, they're watching out for some crocs. And the text says that the royal daughter spotted this miniature ark, and then she sent her, one of her servants to get it, and then the text slows down. And when the text does that, we're supposed to pay attention. The text then goes on to say that she took the basket and then opened it and then saw the child. And then it adds that narrative word, behold, so that what we're doing is we're seeing through her eyes. And what she sees, the first thing she sees is this poor little baby crying. So that's all it takes. Her heart melts. And she recognizes it's a Hebrew boy, and so she identifies it as a Hebrew boy. And as soon as she does that, out jumps this baby's precocious, spunky older sister. And she walks right up to this royal entourage, and she starts making suggestions, you know, telling them what they should do. She's got some chutzpah, right? She's, she's, she's spunky. So she suggests a course of action. She says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And that Egyptian royal says, yeah, it's a great idea. Send her off to do that. And so the little girl goes and gets her mother. Now, I imagine this little girl just kind of naively walking in and saying, well, you know, I happened just like you said. And, of course, the mom probably tried to, like, make it seem less severe in, in what she was doing. But I mean, I'm sure as she, she walks in and says, guess what? Pharaoh's daughter just picked up our, our little baby boy, and, and she wants you to nurse him. I bet her mouth was just, just jaw dropped. I bet tears were streaming down her. She did not, I don't think, expect that to happen. And so that's what she does. She goes to the royal princess. She, she's hired to essentially raise her little boy for the first three or maybe four years. Now, that would have obviously been incredibly hard for her to give up her child. But I would say that she probably continued to, to interact with them because Moses does know his brother and sister later on. He does know Miriam. He does know Aaron. So they probably had some more interaction. But think about it from her standpoint. You are undergoing all these very harsh conditions with your people. How wonderful would it be to know that your little baby boy, who could have been murdered, is now safely in an Egyptian palace? So what what this part of the story is describing is what one scholar describes as Moses' rebirth. And it begins when the the princess sees the baby, which is a verb used for the mom earlier, for his birth mother. And then the baby's first actions are with the princess. And she then, in verse 10, gives him a name after he's grown up and come back. That's something that usually happens with the birth of a child. So Moses here is named and reborn, a son of the Egyptian pharaoh. And... It's a very fitting name, and I think it's fitting on two levels, as, as numerous people pointed out. First of all, it matches an Egyptian term that was used with names. You see it in things like Tut Moses and Ramses. Both have the same Egyptian term. It sounds very much like Moshe, Moses. But it, it's also a Hebrew word, and I think this princess probably was bilingual. It's the perfect name because it also describes in Hebrew his birth, or this birth rebirth process she drew him out of the water it's a perfect name for this bilingual child and so there you have it you have moses 
the pioneer of the Exodus. And he walks the path before God's people do. That's what God's leaders do. That's what he calls them to do, to blaze a trail for people to follow in. Michael Morales did a very good job of, of pointing out all the different ways you see the Exodus actually before the Exodus happens. So you see the Exodus pattern actually in Abraham's life in Genesis 12 when he himself goes down to Egypt. And how does he come out? After God sends plagues on Pharaoh. That's not a coincidence. And then you have the, the even more precise parallel here with Noah, who's delivered through the waters of judgment in the ark. Just happens to touch down on a mount where he meets with God. And then you have Moses here passing through the waters of judgment in his own little ark. And just a few verses later, we're going to see him living in the wilderness for 40 years. And then he's going to wind up on the very mountain that he's going to lead God's people to, the mountain of God. And then Israel, of course, follows the same path. They pass through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. They go through the wilderness. They travel to the mountain of God. But who else, who else blazes the trail for us? I think I heard it. That's right. Sometimes the Sunday school answer is the right answer, right? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus' birth story. Remember, it's just like Moses. He's threatened when he's first born and miraculously escapes. And then Matthew's very clear. He describes Jesus doing his own sojourn in Egypt. And then the next thing you read in Matthew is he's passing through the waters of judgment in his baptism. And he's going out into the wilderness for 40 days. And then in Matthew, he's going up on a mountain to reveal the truth of God's law. So Jesus is, is the person whom this, this pattern's always pointing to. He is, as Hebrews puts it, the founder and pioneer of our faith. Founder or pioneer, depending on how you translate that word. Jesus fulfilled the pattern that we see, but he did it differently. He fulfilled what this is pointing to, not by escaping wrath, but actually by enduring it so that he could be our ark. That's how he fulfilled it. He endured God's judgment so that in him we could pass safely through the waters of judgment. We could pass safely through the judgment we deserve. Have you followed Jesus down that path? Are you following him down that path? What's the, the first step it involves turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus trusting in what he did for you trusting in his death and then what do we do when we turn and trust in Jesus we commemorate that what we've experienced by passing through the waters of judgment in our baptism and then we follow our Lord in this wilderness that we're in and we journey toward that glorious final meeting with God where we meet the Lord in the air. And you know that wording there in 1 Thessalonians? It's remarkably similar to the wording that describes Israel meeting with God at Mount Sinai. So while we follow Christ in this present wilderness, we're called to blaze the trail for others. Not like Jesus did for us, but we're called to help others on this path, to encourage them to join us, to Lead the way, as it were, for others to follow behind. 
And, and it doesn't always happen the way you think. You know, sometimes you imagine how God's going to work and he's going to use only certain kinds of people. Look at the people that he uses. Unexpected people. Two midwives, a, a faithful but nameless mother at this point. This precocious, spunky little sister. Even the daughter of God's enemy. So don't count anybody out. Don't count yourself out. God uses all of us. We need to be faithful. No matter how insignificant you might think you are, you can have a crucial impact simply by being faithful. If any of those women had not been courageous, there would be no Moses. So even the Pharaoh's daughter was... There was a risk to what she was doing. God accomplishes his plans through ordinary people. So when, when Laura and I kind of blazed a trail for, for people by going down to Haiti, you know, we didn't expect much about it, much of it. You know, I mean, it wasn't a perfect trip. There were plenty of things that went wrong. You can't plan for everything. You cannot plan for one of your high schoolers to give away her shoes at the beginning of the trip. She said, because this poor little girl didn't want, or poor little boy or girl would not come to VBS because they viewed the, the church as a, a holy place. It wouldn't come barefoot. And we, honestly, I definitely thought that was pretty reckless of her. What are you doing? We have a whole week here. You're giving away your shoes. But you know what God was doing? He was, he was working in that, that young woman. He was producing in her this heart for missions. You know, that, that eventually would develop and result in her serving in Central Asia as part of our IMB. I mean, obviously, you know, we didn't do anything very significant. We just led a mission trip. But God used it in her life. So, I mean, don't you want to be used that way? Don't you want to be used in the life of someone else? I mean, you may not do something very profound at all, and it could have a huge impact. You just need to be faithful. And, and you need to be courageous, but understand the Holy Spirit is in you, and he can produce that. He can give you courage. Step out there in faith. Be willing to talk. Be willing to say something. Be willing to lead. It's also important for us to remember this exodus that we've experienced. Children of Israel did that through the Passover meal that they had. We do that by participating in the Lord's Supper. And and that's what we want to do this morning. I I do want you to understand that the the Lord's Supper is not just something for your own personal individual experience. And sometimes it's treated that way. This is a church family experience. We do this together as the people of God. And so what we ask uh, is that everyone who participates with us, that you only do so if you've been baptized and you're an official part of a church who believes the same gospel. If that's not the case, and I just ask you to observe what we're doing, and then I would ask you to talk to me afterwards. We could talk about how you could be a part of a church. 
So would the men please come forward to administer the Lord's Supper. Now, while you wait, I'd encourage you to examine yourselves. Examine how you are following our pioneer. Are there some areas in your life where you you don't want to go down his path? You kind of want to keep going down your own path. This This is the temptation that we face. We continue to struggle with. So if that's the case, then I just encourage you to confess that. It's not that you have to abstain from taking it. You can, can let it pass, but you could also just confess that sin and then remember what he's done for us. He's rescued us from our slavery, from sin. Join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, we want to thank you for being our forerunner. We recognize that, I mean, it it was a tremendous amount of courage to come here and sacrifice, even just leaving heaven, leaving the place where everyone perfectly adored and obeyed you, emptying yourself of that honor to join and be part of this, this fallen world to begin this path that really was the the fulfillment of everything that you had been doing before you became human thank you for this amazing love that you've shown us becoming our ark being willing to face And go through judgment for the joy set before you. Pray that we would recognize that. Even as we remember it now. That we would be encouraged to keep following in your steps. Because you've rescued us. Help us to be encouraged both by your word and by this that, that you taught us to do when you were here, remembering what you've done for us in this bread and this cup. Amen.